The content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose any medical condition, replace the advice of a healthcare professional, or provide any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Copyright 2020, Fireteam Whiskey, LLC, all rights reserved. Welcome to the Warrior Wellness Podcast, a podcast for military members, veterans, and first responders focusing on fitness, health, nutrition, and biohacking. Our mission with this podcast is to introduce America's heroes to lifestyle habits and hacks that will help them live healthier, happier lives, and in turn, be fit enough to continue their support of their communities and country. Welcome to the Warrior Wellness Podcast. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Stephanie Kahn. She is a cop turned psychologist and the author of the book, Increasing Resilience in Police and Emergency Personnel. Dr. Kahn is attached to police, fire, and dispatch centers, and she offers debriefings, resilience training, guidance for peer support team development, and various trainings in the subjects of trauma, stress, resilience, and factors affecting first responders and their families. This training on guidance is based on over her 22 years of working in the first responder profession and a lifetime of being a daughter and then wife of police officers. I hope you enjoy our interview with Dr. Stephanie Kahn. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for being on the Warrior Wellness Podcast, and um, we'll just jump right in because especially now, um, more than ever, this is just a great topic to be reminded of. Um, I know you and I have been talking about this issue for many, many, many years now, but you know, because of the, of the bringing in the forefront of this topic, um, you know, now more than ever, really since 9-11, are we realizing the toll that that trauma is taking on our first responders with this pandemic. And it's just the perfect time to revisit this topic and remind all those who are listening right now that there is hope and that there are um, tried and true approaches that you've been practicing for decades now uh, to help first responders get through these traumatic um, experiences. Mm -hmm. So my first question for you is, um, you are a, as I said in my introduction, you are a former police officer. You come from a long line of family being um, police officers. How has your family history and your own experience as a police officer led to what you do today? I mean, my dad was an officer for almost 40 years. And so I had, and he worked in a small department where his officers visited the home in the evenings to talk about cases they were working on or, you know, um, public scrutiny or, you know, media scrutiny or whatever it was. And so very early on, I had a a great admiration and respect for police and what they did and thought it was very uh, interesting. Uh, I was a dispatcher for police, fire and ambulance prior to being an officer. And so um, then going into that, and then I met my husband when I was a dispatcher, he was an officer, totally strange story. I know it never happens anywhere that officers and dispatchers uh, date or or Mary, but um, we've been together for 20, almost 21 years now, and he was an officer for 18 of those years. And so, um, so I think, you know, that, and then just being an officer myself, I noticed that there was a gap in mental health services for officers and uh, that were having uh, struggles. And so that's actually what led me to go into working with them as a psychologist, as a, as a clinician is I saw the gap because I had people, um, coworkers when I was an officer ask me, um, you know, for support that I wasn't equipped to give them because I was a peer supporter and I'm there to just, you know, do some psych first aid and, you know, refer them on to, to a professional, but I had a hard time finding the professionals. I had a hard time finding people that understood the culture. And so I, 
um, became, uh, you know, a, a, a clinician to try to fill that gap to the degree that I could. Yeah. I love that you said understood the culture. Mm-hmm. I think that is huge. Um, I, I just get chills, like just, you know, thinking about this issue. Um, when I was first hired as a, um, a behavioral health provider, I was in the army for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And when I was hired to basically ramp up the first mental health program in in the Florida National Guard, um, that was very important to the the higher ups who were hiring me, that Mm -hmm. I spoke the language and that I understood the culture. Not only did I, was I equipped with the tools, um, you know, as a professional, as a licensed, um, you know, clinician, but it, there, there's just kind of something about that translation of being there, doing that. You, mm-hmm. you lived that life yourself. You were a dispatcher. You were a police officer. You're married to one. Your husband was one. Do you think that makes a huge difference with, with you know, people who are doing this, this stuff professionally and, and those maybe who who haven't had that experience? I think it gives you a ticket um, to people would be more apt to come to you. So now what, you know, so people will come to talk to you quicker than they would someone else that didn't have that kind of background. Now that doesn't automatically make you just, you know, awesome. And the other person is not and another person that doesn't have the right heart or the right attitude and kind of being curious and, and dedicated to learning about the culture can't also be an outstanding clinician, but it, there's kind of an immediate, Oh, okay. I don't have to explain things to you. Oh, okay. I don't have to censor my language with Mm -hmm. you or explain things because a lot of clients that I see have said, Yes, I've had counseling before, but I got really tired of having to explain myself over and over and over again. I wanted to start from a place where there was already an understanding of what I did and then go forward from there. I didn't want to be educating someone during the precious time that I had in a counseling session because that's not the best use of my time. And, you know, and then other times they were actually outright censored. <clears throat> Because maybe their language was was uh, raunchy or uh, explicit or uh, you know graphic or those kinds of things, and so they didn't want to deal with that either. And so there was just an expectation that I was not going to um, be offended by those kinds of things. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, so any of you guys listening out there who are military veterans or former first responders, <laughs> this might be an inspiration for you to, you know, look into mm-hmm. potentially getting the training to become either a peer support um, responder or even getting a professional license like Dr. Khan mm-hmm. and myself and maybe going into this, this world. So mm-hmm. just, that's just a little caveat, but <laughs> um, so with, you know, obviously the timing on this interview is um, uh, really interesting because um, as of yesterday, tons of news coming out about the um, ER doctor. Um, I think it was in New York who um, committed suicide and with the pandemic going on right now and how long it's been going on, um, what would you say is the number one concern right now for you, you know, as a professional clinician in this area for the first responder community? You know, I have kind of mixed feelings about it and I, I did hear about it, but I didn't, I didn't hear much about it because I was working yesterday, but um, it's kind of a split because some of the first responders that I talked to say, you know, 
yeah, there's a risk to me. And my biggest concern is the risk to my family because they, you know, what happens to me can be transmitted to them. And so it's really more of a concern or they have more of a concern for their family because they already signed up for a job where they knew there was risk. So they're saying, well, that's just old hat. This is just another form of risk um, in my job uh, that, you know, but I'm, I've had some that were like, it actually isn't really bothering me a whole lot other than what might happen to my family. And then others are bothered by, um, you know, not just the risk that is involved, but some of the changes in their work where they, some of the proactive policing is being squashed or, you know, certain protocols uh, for treatment are being changed um, or which is making it more bothersome because, you know, paramedics are having to sanitize everything. And so their work is just so much more, um, complicated um, and involved in those kinds of things. And so they become more frustrated by those kinds of things. But then as much as people are complaining about some of those risks or changes, many of them are actually saying, this is actually fine for me because um, I'm actually getting things done at home that I wasn't doing before. Um, I'm spending time with my family that I didn't have before, you know, and so some of them are actually uh, much to my surprise are saying they're doing quite well with these changes aside of not wanting to, you know, all of a sudden be thrown into homeschooling, but they're, they're finding the upside to this because their world has kind of been taken off its axis in some respects. And so, you know, not going to training and not, not uh, doing other things that they would normally have to, or going to court because those things have been postponed. So they have more time and they're actually finding ways to, spend it that's that's actually helpful for them rather than being stretched too thin Mm, yeah that's a good point yeah that's a very Mm. good point um and you know you and i both know um and for those who are listening who don't you know that the fact is that first responders do have a higher rate of suicide Mm -hmm. um and this is not you know this is not anything new Mm -hmm. um you know this has been going on since first first responders existed so Mm -hmm. you know the assumption making the assumption that a first responder is going to be negatively affected by this pandemic is an assumption because Mm -hmm. everybody is an individual and they have individual responses and 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 Mm -hmm. coping mechanisms and and you know and bad and good, you know, like we all do. So we can't make the assumption that this is going to result in some sort of huge, um, you know, mental health crisis in the first responder community. Right. Right. Which is sadly, I mean, again, and I don't want to gloss over that. Yes, it is very difficult for some, um, you know, again, the increased risk of uh, sickness or, you know, just, you know, releasing quote unquote, low level criminals out of the jails, you know, for those kinds of things. I'm not going to say that those things don't exist, but I also want to be very cautious that we don't say, oh my gosh, they're all going to do really, they're going to be a mental health crisis. They're not going to do well. And all this is going to be, because I think when we do that, we almost seem to say to them, you should be having a crisis right now. Uh, you know, and if you're not having a crisis, maybe you're, um, maybe you're just not aware you know, or something's wrong with you that you're not in crisis because I've had a lot of first responders come to me after critical incidences and they say, I'm actually doing okay. I'm doing well. I continue to take care of myself. I continue to connect with my spouse. I have to do the things that, you know, do my workouts. 
and everybody keeps asking me and, you know, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? Like I'm not supposed to be and I'm being handled with kid gloves and it's, it's perpetuating a sick role that mm. um, I don't think, I, I think is a disservice to people that are actually doing fine or adapting as they need to be during trying times. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's such a good point. And, um, you know, as a, as a mirror, as a reflection of that, we do that to veterans as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we just make the assumption. I, I get it all the time, you know, as a, as a military veteran. Oh, you know, do you have PTSD? And, mm-hmm. you know, they automatically assume that there's something broken in me because yeah. of my service, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is, this is something, I mean, unless you're brand new on the force, you know, this is something that they've, they've had to, as an experienced first responder, had to build up some coping mechanisms thus far, because it's not like this is a very first, you know, issue crisis that they've ever responded to. They're, right. they're constantly being exposed to these traumas. Um, you know, maybe it's not it, compared to what's going on right now, but, you know, they have had the opportunity to build up some really good coping mechanisms to put those in place to have them help, you know, have those things help them with, with what's going on right now. So we can't just make mm-hmm. that assumption that they're going right. to have this crisis or be sick. Right. All right. So um, the next question I had for you was, um, you know, those who are family members and friends of um, first responders, um, you know, how, how can they, you know, as kind of not in the force people, not force responder people, but caring very much, you know, for their first responder spouse or, or son or, or friend. Um, what are some tips that maybe you can give to them to, you know, to not do that, that kid glove, assume they're going to be sick kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but how can they, what are some tips that you can give to them on, on how they can provide good support, but not, you know, making those assumptions? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. And it's something that I've thought about often because we get a lot of generic advice. Oh, just, you know, talk to your person about your concerns or listen to your person talk about their concerns. But we sometimes in talking with a person about their concerns, their fears about their work or, or things they've seen or those kinds of things, we actually, a very wise chaplain, police chaplain said this, he said, we sometimes feed, fight, or fix a person's problems, or we try to. We feed it by saying, oh yeah, that is terrible. They shouldn't have done this to you, or you know, they should provide you better equipment or blah. And so it, when they're doing that, they're kind of feeding that frenzy and that frustration that the person's having. So they walk away from the, that discussion although feeling validated, they actually feel more stressed because the person's kind of co-ruminating out loud with them or they fight it and say, well, you know, you're just kind of making a big deal out of nothing. If you don't get that promotion, it's no big deal, blah, blah, blah. You know, what, whatever it is that they're, they're uh, dealing with or trying to fix it and say, well, let me just, you know, uh, make some calls or I know somebody who knows somebody who could tell you, you know, so there, you can have someone talk about an issue and you can meet it and actually exacerbate it by trying to feed, fight, or fix it. So, and this is an article I wrote a few weeks ago for LinkedIn, and I said, what you really want to do is try to empathize with the person first, um, you know, explore how they're coping. Well, how are you, you know, what might help you kind of put this aside or, you know, or, or constructively deal with what parts you can constructively deal with and set aside what you can't. So having a conversation with them where you're exploring, you know, what their options are for either creating change or, or 
or improving coping. And then the third one is actually engaging with them in something besides talking about the issue, the problem, like saying, okay, that sounds like a really rough thing that you've had to go through or, you know, um, let's, um, let's try to do something for the rest of the evening or the rest of the day or your weekend that will get your kind of mind and body in another place rather than that kind of stress filled place. So it's engaging with an act in an activity, you know, going for a walk or, you know, watching a movie or doing something else that you can do during these strange times to try to get the person engaging in their life rather than being saturated in the problem. And so those are the kinds of things that um, I think can be really helpful and far exceed that, generic advice. We'll just talk to someone when you're stressed because that's, it doesn't always work. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they may or may not even want to talk about it. Right. You know? right. So you, you can't force the issue either. That's also mm-hmm. damaging. Right. 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 I love that, that feed, fight or fix. That is a very wise chaplain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. I love that. I'm, I'm going to have that embedded in my mind for the rest of my life. I really do love that. Just that's a very easy way to think of how you can support somebody, whether or not it, even it's a first responder. You know, I'm just oh, thinking yeah. of, think of some of my friends who are kind of going through their own crises right now and, you know, feed, fight, or fix. And you, you just kind of try and avoid those three things and just have enough empathy, but also provide, ask them what they need. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, what can I do to support you right now? What can I do to kind of uh, progress you past and, and help you progress you past this issue? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Great. Okay, so um, the next question I have for you is um, you are an author of a book um, and I am going to pick this up. I'm going to, I've got that other book too that you just recommended to me before we started this podcast. So I'm going to hit Amazon after this. (laughs) So increasing resilience and police and emergency personnel. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I wanted you to talk about how maybe your book could be helpful in this, you know, pandemic situation, Mm -hmm. um, especially to help with um, the impact of COVID-19. Well, the book itself, the first chapter really talks about, you know, the resilience and some of the things that you kind of get, got to get your head wrapped around where you, you dismantle some of the assumptions that police and first responders can't be resilient, that they're plagued by, you know, uh, mental health issues and, and suicide and all these other kinds of things. And so really, it, it, I think, gets you off on the right foot to say, okay, let's take a balanced view of these people, you know, um, that recognizes the challenges, but also recognizes the strengths. But then it, it progresses to, okay, so let's talk about what trauma does in the brain. So you can understand if you are, uh, feel traumatized by something that you're exposed to in the course of your work, that you can understand this is to be expected. This is my brain trying to keep me safe rather than, you know, trying to keep me happy. Um, this is normal. I, there's a way through this. Here's some of the things that I can do to help myself with the trauma. And then it keeps progressing to, okay, not just trauma, but what about those everyday st- stressors? What about those organizational hassles? What about those um, in the difficulty with, with falling asleep or staying asleep? What about, you know, in, you know, how do these other things where, you know, communication with your family um, get uh, stretched and, and challenging during times like this? So it's very concrete insofar as it will say, here's what an issue is. Here's what we know about it and what you need to understand about it. And here's some things you can try. And at the end of each chapter is tools for your duty belt, where it's some, 
you know, and, and I even encourage people to kind of write their own. Was there anything else you took away from this that will help you get better sleep, will help you set aside things you can't control, will help you to better communicate your needs to people, will get your, you know, um, uh, thinking about an issue to be, you know, accurate and helpful. So it's, it's very practical. Um, and no, it's not written for a pandemic, but it's written for stress and trauma and hassles and relationships and health. So it's absolutely going to apply. Yeah. So is your book, um, increasing resilience in police and emergency personnel, is this, this book for um, uh, unit leaders, or is it for just like the everyday frontline first responders, or is it for it, both? It's for both. There's I I I worked really 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 hard to try to capture four lenses that would be important, and the first one is the line officer. Um, although many firefighters and paramedics have said it aptly applies to them as well, very much. They said just change some of the the you know. Uh, nouns and basically you're talking about me. Um, it's meant to be for the administrator. Um, so some of the challenges that they have during difficult times, traumatic events, those kinds of things, because my dad was a chief for half of his career. It's meant for the family members um, and it's meant for the civilian, like the dispatcher call takers, because I wasn't, you know, or crime scene technicians, I wasn't going to leave them out. So and I encourage them, don't skip to your section of, of the chapter, because each chapter has all four. Don't, you'll be tempted to skip to your section. Don't do that, because if you better understand the unique challenges of those other people, you'll all work better together. And so it took a, like, in typing, it was over 300 pages, but in print, I don't remember how many it ended up being, but um, yeah, it was certainly captures all four lenses. Okay. Yeah. Great. So anybody listening to this right now who, you know, even maybe be a family member or friends mm -hmm. of um, first responders, this would be a good book for you. Even if, you know, you are not personally dealing with the trauma, it will give you the tools to kind of understand better, mm -hmm. um, you know, what they go through on a daily basis and how uh, equip you with some tools to, to help them, you know, rather than just, mm -hmm. um, uh, what was it? Fixing, uh, fighting or feeding. <laughs> yes. Fixing, fighting or feeding. I'm going to get that tattooed on yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. So yes. Great. <laughs> So are, Dr. Khan, are there any last words or points that you feel like you'd like to make concerning um, trauma and resiliency in our first responders? Well, I think it's, it's one of those things where you need to think about resiliency like you think about um, officer safety. Um, you know, if you go to the academy and you train to be safe and to make choices and to size up what the threats are to you, what kind of assist you need out there. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think you, or the kind of approach you need to think of in terms of resilience. You need to think, who, what assist do I need? What do I do, need to do to prepare for whatever challenge that I'm facing? How do I moment to moment make adjustments in my approach to things to what I, in, in, in my approach to the situation to make sure that I continue to be safe. Now, psychologically safe as well as physically safe, which is how you would think of it in terms of your <clears throat> officer safety. Instead of taking the approach, I'll wait until something's really started to take a toll on me and then I'll decide to practice safety. Then I'll decide to practice resiliency because you don't wait until you're injured on a call physically 
till someone assaults you because you've not been aware of your surroundings and the risk to you and not asked for the things you needed in terms of assist. Um, you don't wait for that in your line of work. Don't wait for that in your life. Build mm -hmm. resilience preemptively and don't become complacent with your resilience, with your relationships, with your health, with your mindset, because that's, you know, it's, you don't wait till you're in a crisis to build those three things because they won't serve you at the time you need them most, just like officer safety won't serve you if you think about it after the fact. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great final point. That was perfect to end on. <laughs> well, Dr. Khan, thank you so much again for being on the Warrior Wellness Podcast. And we will put all the links, um, especially to your book, where they can purchase that on the show notes. Yes, now she's showing it on the screen. So if you're listening to the podcast, you don't see it, but you can. <laughs> very awesome looking book. I can't wait to get it. Thank you so much, Dr. Khan. Yes, of course. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Captain Stephanie Lincoln with Fireteam Whiskey. Thanks for tuning in to our episode of the Warrior Wellness Podcast. Make sure to go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to our podcast. And while you're there, go ahead and leave us a review. And if you screenshot your review and send a screenshot of your review to info at fireteamwhiskey.com, we will send you some awesome Fireteam Whiskey swag.